Well, good morning to all of you. Um, so to bring those of you up to speed um, who weren't here the last time that I shared, um, I am sharing a, um, a group of messages on the church. And so last time we talked about corporate prayer and um, thinking about prayer not as individuals but as a group. And we're going to be talking about apostles' teaching. So thinking about what the early church looked like, why it looked that way, and then um, next time I plan to preach on, um, so I'm not going to preach on the breaking of bread, but I'm going to um, share on church as community or church as family, and then finally the, the church in praise and power. So, um, so I'm not a prophet, I'm not predicting the future, but that, that's what I'm planning as a, as a present. So, um, so we think about preaching and about good preachers, and you probably have in your, in your head things that you, you think um, uh, good preaching means. Um, when I was young, it meant that they told lots of stories. So somebody who told lots of stories, um, particularly funny stories, uh, that, that, was, that was what I looked forward to. And I don't know that I always got much out of the message, but I sure enjoyed the stories. Um, and Jesus told stories too, didn't he? He, he told these things we call parables. And, uh, and um, we, uh, for us, the parables maybe seem pretty old hat. We, we've heard them so many times that they don't seem as interesting. But for his, um, his listeners, they were brand new. You know, so Jesus would tell a story about a sower who went out to sow seed and, and um, People could picture this, and then, then Jesus never gave an explanation. He just told this story, and uh, then he told his disciples later on what it meant. Um, maybe, um, maybe the best preachers are people who can uh, who can open up the Bible to to really hard passages like the Book of Romans, and and they just get into the the Apostle Paul's teaching, and they can delve into those things that just really nobody understands, and they can explain it. Um, and it's a little bit like quantum physics. You know, if I stood up here and told you all about quantum physics, most of your eyes would probably glaze over. But if I was just really talented, I could just, you know, say like atoms and quarks and electrons, and you would all just really be wowed. Well, um, uh, when I read the sermons that the apostles preached, um, some of them seem a little rambly. So, you know, like if you read what um, um, Stephen um, who was a deacon, not an apostle, but he was still an early church preacher. Um, he, um, he talked to the Sanhedrin, and he tells his story, and it just sort of starts off with Abraham, and it goes along, and, and finally he finishes up saying, and then Jesus is just the culmination of all this, and that's when they got really upset. Um, Paul was long-winded enough that he preached most of the night, and a young man fell out of a window. So, you know, fortunately we don't have anybody leaning on the window back there, um, and uh, but if we did, you know, uh, maybe we just have to give them a parachute. So we're going to read from Acts chapter two, verses forty-one through forty-seven. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. So this is at the end of Peter's first message. So we know at the time of Pentecost there were um, tongues of fire that seemed to come down from heaven. The people spoke in different tongues. And then Peter went out and preached a really fiery message um, to the Jewish people that were gathered. And, um, and a bunch of people chose to follow Jesus that morning. 
So they were baptized, and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls, uh, which is more than all of us here put together and times by about five probably. So, um, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So these were the important things to the early church. Preaching, um, sacraments or ordinances, um, fellowship, and praying. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that it believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so one of the things mentioned here is the apostles' teaching. And um, other things mentioned, they prayed together, they had communion together, broke bread is speaking of that. Um, They lived life together. They had strong community. And as a result of all these things, they were filled with praise and power. Um, And they were outward looking. So people wished to join their community because of what they saw in that church. They desired to have that community for themselves. Um, and not everything was perfect. We know uh, just a few chapters later that um, that the widows got upset. And I don't, uh, I don't know, you know, they uh, some of the widows thought the other widows were being treated better than the, than they were. And anyway. So why was the apostles' teaching so important to the early church? Uh, Well, part of the reason is because they didn't have most of this. Okay, so they had the Old Testament, right? Um, They had scrolls of the prophets and of Moses, but they did not have New Testament teaching. Um, So most of that was written down 20 or 30 years after Jesus um, rose from the dead. And so... The important thing about the apostles was not their learning. They had not been to seminary or to college or, you know, anything else. They had been with Jesus. And it talks about that later on, that, um, that the um, Pharisees, uh, the, the uh, people in the Sanhedrin, looked down on the, the apostles um, because they were unlearned men, um, but they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. And so... Um, So we have here an oral tradition. We have a group of people that know something because of who they spent time with. And so they are sharing the gospel as they heard it directly from the mouth of Jesus. And I think at that point they probably thought that Jesus was coming back any day. And because of that, there's no need to write stuff down. Why would you write books about somebody that you knew personally and that you spent time with. The important thing is just to get that message out there. And so every day they stood up and they told the the people the things that they remembered that Jesus had said, that he had done, the ways in which he explained the Old Testament prophecies. And so the way that the early church understood the Old Testament, the way they understood Jesus was through this apostle's teaching. I think about medical school, and medical school um, is um, very textbook oriented. So 
you know, if you, um, if you take a, a class on anatomy, say, um, there's a textbook there. And there's several different textbooks that medical schools use, but all the textbooks are going to have certain things in common. You know, if you find a textbook that, like, completely has a different way of explaining human anatomy, it, it would be concerning. You know, you'd say, well, what's wrong with this textbook? It's, it's completely different. It says the head is attached to the foot. That's crazy. Nobody would use such a textbook. Um, and, um, you know, but at one time there weren't medical textbooks. There were just um, um, doctors who um, did things wrong and they taught their, um, their followers to do things wrong. And then those followers taught their followers to do things wrong. Um, and unfortunately, that's the, way, uh, that's the way we learn is we just learn from whoever's teaching us and we assume that they know what they're doing. That doesn't always happen. In this case, the apostles knew what they were doing. So expository teaching. Um, good preaching is going to be expository. Um, and that's a long word, isn't it? Um, so when we think of expository thinking, um, preaching, we think about a preacher taking a book of the Bible and working through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And that is one way of doing it. Um, but the real point of expository preaching is that you begin with a passage of Scripture and you break down what it means in practical terms for the congregation. Um, and maybe there's two big dangers um, So, um, for preachers. So I remember when I was growing up, a, a man um, who, who wasn't very comfortable um, um, giving topics. And, um, and so he was doing a topic and he said, let's um, turn to Psalm 119. And he began reading at verse 1, and he read all the way to the end, which I think is around verse 176. Um, and um, then he, um, he stood there for a little bit, with some silence, and then he said, I believe this scripture speaks for itself, and he sat down. And it probably did. <laughs> but um, other things were probably said silently as well. Um, so... I think it's it's probably not good just to read scripture um, when you're preaching. I think it's a good idea to explain a little bit what you see in the scripture and apply it. On the other hand, there are preachers who take a single verse and tell all kinds of stories and explain what they think about it and what it means from different points of view. Um, I heard a preacher once say that he believes a verse from Ephesians, wherefore be not wise but understand what the world, meaning of the what the will of the Lord is means that if you get divorced, you shouldn't date anyone for a year. And, and I'm not a Bible scholar, but I know that that's not what that verse means. But he just sort of drew it out and said, well, you know, he feels like this is a good place to, to come down. And I struggle with that. When we study Scripture, the question is, what is Scripture saying to us? And if it's hard, how do we apply that to our lives? So early sermons. Um, if you look through the book of Acts, there's probably 18 or 19 sermons, depending on how you count sermons. Some of them are only a few verses, so we don't know all of what was said. So like at the Jerusalem Council, we know that Peter stood up and, and gave um, a talk. Knowing Peter, he probably wasn't short-winded. James also um, gave a talk. We don't know everything of what they said. So Luke kind of summarizes things. Um, we, uh, we know, for instance, Peter also talked at the day of Pentecost at Cornelius' house. Uh, we have one at, uh, from Stephen. And so what are the characteristics of, of sermons 
in the early church. So one thing is that they seem to be pretty long. Um, so we're used to sermons that last, what, maybe 45 minutes or so, 40 minutes. Um, I, I can remember some longer sermons than that, and I, I thought the, um, the preacher was never going to get done. Um, but in Acts chapter 4, we find that Peter healed a lame man around 9 a.m., and he was arrested in the early evening. So you think about 9 a.m. to, let's say, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Um, we don't know if he was preaching the whole time, but he certainly, you know, he was going on for a while. So, you know, hours and hours. Um, in Acts chapter 20, we find Paul preaching all night. And this is the story we mentioned about the uh, Eutychus falling out of the upper room. Um, and it's important to remember that sermons that we have in Acts are primarily summations of longer addresses. Acts 2 um, says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So it's understanding that, that Luke could have, you know, it's like it says at the end of the Gospel of John, that if we wrote everything down that Jesus said and did, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. Um, in the same way, if we had documentation of every single message, every word that was said, um, it would be too big for a scroll to hold it. And so it just didn't work. Second thing that we see um, is not only were these sermons um, long, they were geared to their listeners. So when we see sermons for Jewish audiences, they were focused on Old Testament stories that the Jewish people would have been familiar with. Sermons for non-Jews um, were different. So um, the one that I think of is um, Paul's sermon at Mars Hill, or the Areopagus. And it says there that he used quotations from Greek poets, um, specifically somebody named Aras, Aratus of Soloi. So I don't know who that was, so maybe you are more acquainted with him. Um, he also told a little story about walking through their city, didn't he? He said, I was walking through your city and I saw this altar. It's a nice way to jump off the altar to the unknown God. And um, he says, I've come to declare that unknown God to you. So they were forthright in their messages. Um, Acts 2, verses 20 through 25 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So I'm sure Peter was, uh, was holy um, spirit um, indwelled at this point, but it seems pretty brave to say, you know, Jesus was, God and you, you crucified him. And, you know, um, I think it's a challenge when somebody's preaching to say honestly what they're thinking in their heart, things that, um, you know, people tend to, they just like to kind of beat around the bush a little bit and make things a little gentle because they're just not sure how their audience will take it. All of these sermons had an evangelistic flavor. So every single sermon that I could find in the book of Acts, finishes up with a, um, 
with this salvation message. It says, you know, however they start off, however they come around to it, they come around to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and you need to accept his sacrifice. And then men's lives were changed as a result of this preaching. Um, so God has chosen to work through sermons. And I don't really know why that is. I mean, he could probably work through a lot of different things. Um, Acts 2, 37, 38, and 41 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Even today, God continues to work through preaching. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who we believe. And there are probably different ways in which God moves to change hearts, but it certainly seems like he uses preaching. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in the New England um, part of the country in the 1730s, um, and he was not a fiery preacher. Um, Observers said that he scarcely gestured or even moved, and he made no attempt by the elegance of his style or the beauty of his pictures to gratify the taste and fascinate the imagination. Um, and despite this, he preached a sermon that is one of the most famous sermons in American history called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And during the sermon, people moaned and cried out from the congregation, what must I do to be saved? And this was probably the beginning of what was called the, the Great Awakening in this country. It was a revival time when, um, when there were a number of different um, preachers who went around and, and life came to the church, at least for a time. Unfortunately, it seems like when there's a great awakening, there's also sort of a, uh, a great um, a dying back. So, you know, it seems like the roller coaster. Churches get alive and then they sort of just kind of peter out a little bit. So we're going to look at the duty of the preacher and then the duty of the congregation. Um, so thinking about, um, thinking about these things, I, I think it's important to understand what... What, when Milo or myself or Galen, Leon, the others, as they share, as they preach, uh, what are we trying to do? And, and what is your responsibility in response to that? So 2 Timothy three fourteen through 16, um, Paul is writing to, to Timothy. We know that um, this is Paul's last letter that we have recorded. So uh, maybe he wrote other letters after this, but this is close to the end of Paul's life. And he's writing to Timothy, who is um, in a church um, at Ephesus, and he's telling him, giving him a charge for what he should do. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So we're going to continue reading right on into chapter 4, um, but we're going to stop here for a, a moment. Um, and Paul is talking, first of all, about a godly heritage. He says, when you have a godly heritage, when you have studied the Bible and been exposed to the Bible from a young age, this is something that is valuable. Probably more valuable than if you're, than your mother and father left you $5 million in the bank or, you know, whatever else you could think of. And the fact that Timothy had been exposed to the Bible from his youth was going to help him in his role as pastor. Second thing is that knowledge of the scriptures brings wisdom. Now, this is the way in which Jesus is revealed to those of us who did not walk on the earth when he was here. So we were talking about the apostles. The apostles knew Jesus personally. They had seen him do things. And yet none of us knew, knew Jesus when he walked. Not, not the oldest one of us was even close to being around when Jesus was here. The third thing is that scripture is inspired or breathed out by God. This book is different and needs to be treated seriously by those who open it and read. And we need to be careful not to distort what it says. And then it has many different purposes. So we're going to touch on those, on instruction, doctrine, conviction of sin, um, and drawing us in the path of righteousness. Um, and part of, the, part of the challenge when you're preaching is just simply knowing what to leave out. So um, it's not, there's, there's so many good things you could say. Um, and yet, um, um, I remember at Fresh Start, we, um, we had a situation where, um, where our lead pastor was preaching, and, um, and we had a lot of other people coming in to, to preach as well. And, and one, um, one pastor from the local community came in, and he said he'd preached this message probably 20 different times. And, um, and he said every time he starts thinking about it, he adds another point to it. And at the point at which he preached this at Fresh Start, he had 26 points. 26 points is a lot of points for a sermon. Um, and they were all good things. They didn't really seem to be related to each other, except that they all lived in the same house, which was his sermon. But um, sometimes you just have to leave some things out, just so your audience can kind of catch hold of what you're trying to get at. So we're going to go on to, to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths (coughs) as for you always be sober-minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist Fulfill your ministry. This is a continuation of the passage we read earlier. Um, I like having verses and chapters in the Bible. They, they help you find something. So if, if I said, you know, turn to page uh, 362, uh, which is the second page of the book of James, you might be able to find or you might not be able to find it, depending if you have the same Bible as I have. You probably wouldn't. I, my parents gave me my Bible in 1986, so very few of you probably were given your Bible in 1986. Uh, but if you had exactly the same same like copy of the Bible, you might be able to find the same place. But it's sure handy to have 
um, verses and chapters. But unfortunately, verses and chapters also tend to, to break up thoughts in ways that maybe the, the person writing the passage didn't intend. So, you know, Paul didn't write verses and chapters. He wrote letters. Um, and you can imagine if you write a letter to somebody or an email to somebody um, and somebody starts splitting it up afterwards and puts different things together than you intended, it could make it kind of odd. So Paul had said earlier to Timothy that scripture was useful for a lot of different things. And here he says that Timothy's job is to do these same things that scripture is good for. So he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Clearly he is saying Timothy, Scripture is good for these things. You use it as your tool to do those same things in the church that need to be done. Um, He speaks of times that are coming, and I I would guess that we're probably there or pretty close to there when people no longer want to listen to sound doctrine, when people pursue myths, and often people... You know, people will say, oh, you know, Christianity is a myth. Everything else is a myth. You just choose the myth that you want to believe, and you just, you just pursue that. Um, and pre- preachers definitely struggle with what they say. If they say the wrong things to their congregation, they may not be preacher there anymore. So what are the things that Scripture is good for? What are the things that should be addressed in the sermons? So the first thing is doctrine. Um, so David Berceau wrote a book called Will the Real Theologian Please Sit Down? And, uh, or something like that. I read it. Um, I think his main point was that living for Jesus is more important than all the, the details of theology. And, and he's probably right. Um, but I do think it's important that we have the right theology too. Um, we can still serve Jesus even if we don't understand atonement theory um, or, or every little thing that Paul explains in the book of Romans. Um, but at the same time, it, it is good if we understand who God is and, and we can approach him in that understanding. The God we serve has revealed himself in Scripture so that we may serve him correctly. So theology is important. Um, and it's important that as we open Scripture, we address it with with a correct understanding of who God is and of who we are in a relationship to him. The second thing is instruction in righteousness. And this is probably the thing that, that Anabaptist people focus on the most. We want to be holy like God. Um, I trust we do this morning. Um, and as we open scripture, we see ways in which we can serve God more fully. If we go away from a sermon challenged but unchanged, then that's a problem. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And I've been burdened lately just thinking about how unsanctified the church is. If Jesus comes back today, the church is not going to see him holy without spot or wrinkle. We're not perfect here at Bethel, and certainly a lot of the other churches across this country aren't either. And so 
it is as we open Scripture, as we look at it, that God can, can purify us and make us what we should be. I don't think we have a full understanding of the holiness of God. But if we did, we'd understand how far away from that we really are. So that's instruction and righteousness, reproof and correction. And um, these two things are linked. Uh, the idea here is to identify sinful behavior um, and even behaviors um, that are driving us away from a closer relationship with God. This is reproof. <clears throat> and then correction is the idea of fixing the mistakes, of putting into place <clears throat> better practices that will help us to grow in our Christian walk. So scripture is helpful for both of these things. So um, if any of you have scored a self-check recently, um, we could say that reproof is scoring the self-check and identifying things that are wrong. Correction is going through and putting the right answers in. So unfortunately, so often we do just one or the other, and we don't, you know, um, we don't link reproof and correction the way we should. And this is probably the hardest part of listening to Scripture, is to see areas in which our lives don't measure up and to figure out ways in which we can serve Jesus better. What practices can I do that will enrich my relationship to Jesus? And then evangelism. So this is probably the thing that most people think of when they think of preaching. Romans 10, 11 through 15, it's probably the passage that comes to most people's mind. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. And I don't know that all preachers have the gift of evangelism. I, I don't feel like I've got that gift necessarily. Um, but Paul saw clearly that a goal of the preacher is to identify people's need of Jesus and to share with them that good news of Jesus. Um, so people are often quick to share things that, um, that they found that cured their ailments. So maybe um, I, I think about this because during COVID, there was just a lot of, there's a lot of things that people said they found that, that made, um, made their COVID just melt away. Somebody uh, told me, oh, they exercised vigorously when they found out that they had COVID and they just felt like they just sweated it out. Um, and, um, then somebody else told me that they uh, um, that they had started on elderberry extract. I don't know if any of these things work or not, but I just think whenever you have something that you think works, that that has benefited you, you share it with other people and you say, this has changed my life. I was over here and I felt terrible. And then I started doing this other thing and I was so much better. And yet, what do we do with Jesus? We talk about him Sunday mornings and, and Sunday evenings, and then that's about it. Uh, and yet, we have good news. That's what the gospel means, good news that we can share with other people. And you don't have to be evangelizing. You just have to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so.
the key of the New Testament is found in verses like um, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So I've been reading about Charles Spurgeon. Um, you all have probably heard the name of Spurgeon. I've brought him up before. And he seemed like he had an amazing workload. Um, he, uh, um, he was uh, preaching somewhere between four and ten sermons a week. Um, and he really did believe that Jesus was central to his ministry. And so, and so he tried to bring all of his messages around to Jesus. Um, and I think, um, I think he had trouble delegating things. He seemed like he wanted to be like in charge of everything. Not, I don't think he did bad things, but he sort of burned out as a result. So he would sort of have this cycle where he would do all this stuff and then he'd sort of like just peter out and he'd have to take a vacation because he just was in bad health and eventually he died. So then he stopped preaching after that. Um, but I would hold him up as somebody who focused on the word and on centering the word on Jesus. Um, and so as he was able to do that, his church grew. Um, and he ministered to a lot of people in London. Um, and so that's what we should be doing. We should hold up Jesus. So what is the duty of the congregation? So we're going to talk about a few different things here. Um, Acts 17, 10 through 12 talks about the Bereans. So you all have heard of the Bereans. Um, um, and their church is named after that. I think there's a school up in... Um, up in Harrisonburg, named Berea, as a result. Um, so people like um, that, whereas they don't, uh, they don't use the name, um, say, Thessalonica in their church names, do they? No, Smyrna, Laodicea. These are names that don't, don't seem to live on. It's probably a reason for that, right? So it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. So this was, Paul was in Thessalonica, and the people just really... The Jewish people got everybody kind of worked up against him. And, um, and so they, they left the city late at night um, and um, went, on, went to a nearby city called Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received with word all readiness, the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also the honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men not a few. So the first thing here is that the Bereans listened. So it's hard to search the scriptures whether things are correct if you don't first hear what somebody's saying. So, um, you know, if you, if you don't listen, it's like the, the seed that falls on the, on the path, right? It, it's not going to go anywhere. It just bounces off, and then the birds eat it, and that's what it is. Uh, but the second thing is, once you, once you hear, you need to hold the minister accountable for what they share. Search and see, is this right? Is this, a, is this an accurate interpretation of what Scripture says, or is it wrong? So in the case of the Bereans, they were willing to invest the effort um, to look at the Old Testament Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was accurate. So he was opening up the prophecies and saying, Jesus did this and this and this and this, and that fulfilled them. And they opened it up themselves, and they looked at it, and they said, yes, you are right, and we believe as a result of that. Um, 
And unfortunately, our tendency is to shoot down anything that is, is different from our current practice. And uh, that's not always a good thing. Uh, anything that makes us feel uncomfortable, we, we tend to just discount it. There's a reason why we're not doing things that way. Uh, but we need to be willing to open the scripture and say, this is, this is what scripture says. And he's right or he's wrong. Second thing is accept the transforming power of the gospel. So we've mentioned this, but this is about God making us in his image. Um, we can picture a sculptor bending over a statue, gently chiseling here and there just to bring out the features that need to be seen. Isaiah 45 verse 9 says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. And I'm afraid that a lot of times our tendency is to resist the pressure of the gospel in our lives. You know, maybe we think of this in terms of somebody who's deep in sin resisting a call to salvation. But it's something more than that. Every day, God is wanting to change our lives into something that resembles him. You know, when God came down in the Garden of Eden and molded that clay, he was molding something in his own image. And that was marred in the fall. We no longer really look very much like God. And he wants to bring that back and say, this is what I look like, and I want to see my face in your face. That's what it means to be a son of God, is that we look like our father. Do not look in a mirror and then go away unchanged. Um, so James talks about this, um, that um, in James chapter 1, about the man who looks in the mirror and then goes his way and forgets what manner of man he was, uh, and says that this is the way a lot of people uh, use scripture. They read something and then they just go on their way, and it's just the same old. Um, and so... That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Um, our tendency is not to to let the things soak in. Um, so if you look in the mirror and you see that your hair is sticking up and that you, your teeth need to be brushed and, um, and your collar is just all askew, um, you probably should take a little time to fix those things. Um, your wife will probably say something if you don't, but, um, but other people will notice. Um, so even if you're not thinking about it, they will see that. Um, so when we listen, we can hear a simple affirmation of everything we are already doing, or we can focus on the ways in which God wants to change us and to change our church. Um, maybe sometimes when we sit down, we hear the way in which God wants to work in our brother or sister's life, and we say, you know, I can really see how this message applies to brother so-and-so. And that's probably not a good thing to do either, is it? You know, yes, God wants to change brother so-and-so, but he also wants to change you. He wants to change me. We need to hear God's word speaking to us personally. Next thing I would say is that we need to be willing to ask questions. Um, so often after we preach, um, there's some silence or there's... Um, uh, People affirming what they heard. Um, usually people don't shoot it down. Um, but 
I think it'd be good if we ask questions. If there's something that we don't have clarity on, um, it's not that I have all the answers or Milo has all the answers, but it's the idea that hopefully your answers can get, your questions can get answered by somebody. That you don't go home and you think, you know, I wish I understood that thing better or that other thing better. I wonder if many times we are bad at passing our beliefs and our convictions on to our children because we don't really know why we do the things we do. And we do a bad job of opening ourselves up to questions that they have about those things. Um, If somebody asks you about one of our practices, do you know why we do it? Do you understand the reasons the principles behind it and then the application that we use. And a a lot of times we focus on what's right and wrong and um, I don't know that that's always the the question, but if we can at least understand the principles behind our church's decisions, that helps. We should pray ahead of time that the soil of our hearts would be ready for the seed of the word. Um, And Jesus told the parable of the sower Uh, We're not going to read that this morning. But so much of what we get out of a sermon is based on the preparation that we have ahead of the sermon. Did we pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts to see things that were beneficial to us? Were we able to pay attention during the service? And when you have little children, that doesn't always happen. Uh, But we can still pray that God will at least bring a couple things through the... um, the inattention that we have that are important for us. Did we eat a, a, a something before we came to church so we're not just famished? Did we sleep the night before um, or do we go to bed too late? And then the final thing I would say is bring somebody else. So Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Assuming that you feel like you are getting some benefit out of church, about the opening of the scriptures and and being in fellowship with other Christians, invite other people to come. It could benefit them too. So kind of wrapping things up. It's interesting that when the apostles were dealing with the issues among the widows in the congregation at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6, they they talked to the the congregation. It says, the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I don't think they were saying we're more important than other people. They were saying we have a specific calling. We spent time with Jesus. It is really important that we get his message out there in a way that maybe somebody else can't do. They were called to pray and to share God's word with the congregation there. And I'd like to to finish just with a a story about Dwight Moody. So I don't know how much you all know about Dwight Moody. He's obviously one of the most famous preachers in American history. Um, D.L. Moody, 
Um, he was a he was a shoe salesman. So he um, he started off. He went to Boston. He he grew up on a farm, and he didn't get along. He was just kind of a, a ne'er do well kind of person, and um, and got into a lot of trouble. And finally, he decided I I hate farm life. I'm going to go to Boston. See an uncle who lived in in Boston. And he thought my uncle has a shoe store there. He'll hire me to to work in his shoe store. And he ended up getting a job in this shoe store. Um, but his uncle made him promise that he would attend church. Um, and this was, um, this was uh, not something that D.L. Moody probably wanted to do, but he was willing to do it so he could get a job. And, and while he was going to church, he became converted because of a Sunday school teacher. A man took interest in him and spent time with him and shared God's word with him, and it, it changed his life. Um, now, D.L. Moody was not, he was not somebody who was uh, educated. He basically, I don't know how many grades he finished. Uh, the story showed that he was uh, writing a letter to somebody, and he said, um, so do you spell Philadelphia F-E-L or F-I-L? And he said, oh, never mind. I'll just write it so they can't tell which. And he, I guess he wrote it like with the E or I sort of scribbled. So anyway, he wasn't a good speller. We'll say that. Um, but when he gave his life to God, a friend of his said to him, it remains to be seen what God will do with a man who gives himself up wholly to him. And Moody said in response, I will be that man. And R.A. Torrey shared that D.L. Moody rose every morning around 4 a.m. and began to study his Bible. He studied it, looking at it practically, looking for things for him and for the people that he taught. The last time that D.L. Moody preached a series of meetings in the Chicago area, he told churches to reserve a large auditorium, and he would preach meetings at 10 a.m. in the morning. And the people protested. They said, why don't we do evening meetings? They're business people. There's people who, who can't come in, in a morning. And D.L. Moody said he thought that it would interfere with the work of local churches, and he would preach to whoever would come at 10 a.m. And if there wasn't anybody, that would be what it was. And Tori said that when he came to the first meeting, there was a line of people going out of the church, the building, and down the block. And they, were, they packed 8,000 people into the auditorium that morning. And he attributed this to D.L. Moody's willingness to preach the word. He, um, he was, um, R.A. Tori was the first uh, superintendent at what later became the um, the Moody Bible Institute, and he said about him, because though Mr. Moody knew little about science or philosophy or literature in general, he did know the one book that this old world is perishing to know and longing to know, and this old world will flock to hear men who know the Bible and preach the Bible as they will flock to hear nothing else on earth. That gospel that Dwight Moody, Charles Spurgeon, um, and Peter and Paul preached the same one that we open today. And we come here, it is not to have our ears tickled or amazing stories told. It's to hear the word of God, the apostles' doctrine spoken to people who need to hear it just as much as ever. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I do pray that you would bless your word, help it to be something that's meaningful. Help it to change lives and help us.
here at Bethel to know how best to reach out into surrounding communities and to bring people to you. Just be with the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.